Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast, number 301. Thanks very much for taking that journey with me last week, and especially thank you to everybody who took the time to jump in and make a guest appearance or contribute something fun. I really appreciated all of it, and I just thought it was a really amazing throwback to everybody who's been involved since day one. So thank you all very much, and let's jump in to see what we got this week. First up, pre-orders are now open for the Bomberman 1 and 2 NES soundtracks on vinyl. The price is about $27, and it's scheduled to release by quarter three of this year, or by the end of quarter three of this year. And this is kind of interesting, because the Bomber 1 soundtrack is short. So the first side of the record has just the very short soundtrack, but then it's etched with a design that as it spins, it creates the sprites of the game. So that's pretty neat. This is something where you could enjoy the short soundtrack, but also kind of have a very neat visual cue along with it. And then the other side is Bomberman 2, which is a longer soundtrack. So while this one seems to be a sale that's more on the side of the entire experience, I am still always happy to see video game soundtracks getting unique releases like this. So this is pretty cool. Uh, and if you're a fan of the games or just a really weird and unique vinyl, that definitely check out Crystal's post. Next, Todd from RetroFrog just released a 3D printed clip that aims to solve an issue that's been pissing off gamers since the 90s. This clip allows you to easily route the controller cable through the top of the cable, not out the bottom, which is something that bothers quite a lot of people and some people don't really, it doesn't really matter to them. But if you're one of those people, you're able to download this 3D printed file and print it yourself for free. Or if you don't have a 3D printer or just also want to help support the creator, you could buy this for just five bucks directly from the RetroFrog website. So this is one of these handy little designs that I always enjoy seeing because it's simple but very effective. It solves an issue and you're able to print it yourself or purchase to help support the creator. So this is just overall a win for everybody. Thanks to Todd for doing this and thanks to Ronnie for writing it up. Developer Gibbons recently released a product that replaces the MC68000 processor on certain x68K computers with a Raspberry Pi-based accelerator. So it offloads all of the processing onto the Pi through a translation board and a bunch of other stuff so that you could use the Pi's processor and all of the power of a modern mini computer in your x68K in order to improve performance. So this is one of these weird hybrid modern retro hardware things that I think is really awesome. And if you own an x68K and you really enjoy using it and want to do weird stuff with it, I think this would be at the very least something that you have to look into and read about whether you decide it's for you or not obviously totally up to you but this seems like it's really worth everybody who owns an x68k's time to go through so if you're interested it's going to be about 200 dollars and requires you to provide the raspberry pi so it's not a cheap solution but 
I don't know. It just seems really neat. So if it's something you think you might be interested in, check out Andrew's post, check out the links. Uh, but it seems like a must read for all six, X68K owners. Maybe not necessarily, necessarily a must buy, but it seems like a must read. This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLCPCB, and since the past few weeks I showed you how to place a PCB assembly order and showed you the process there, I thought it would be pretty neat to go back and reshow that video describing what goes on inside a manufacturing facility like that and how the PCBA orders work. So while I've never been to an assembly facility as impressive as JLC PCBs, I have been to places like it, and I can kind of walk you through what it is that you're seeing here. They have a giant warehouse of component preparation, and each shelf is numbered and corresponds to your order, so that when your order is ready, everything gets scanned in, as well as your PCBs and your stencils. And now, when you have a PCB assembly made, a stencil is required because everything's done through machinery for surface mount stuff. So a few weeks ago, I talked about having a stencil for making your own stuff on a reflow oven. Here's how it's done in a factory environment, where the machinery goes through and spreads the solder paste only on the areas of the PCB that require any of the components. Then it gets scanned through a different machine to make sure that nothing's splattered and everything lines up. And then comes my favorite part of watching these videos, the pick-and-place machine. These are different machines that go through and take individual components and place them exactly where they need to be on top of the existing solder paste. These things are so cool to see in person, and it's so interesting and fascinating to me how they get programmed to put everything in the exact place they need. But it's not quite done from there. While it's sticky on there, it won't be until it goes through the reflow oven where it's heated up to the correct temperature in order for all of the components to permanently bind to the board. Then it gets inspected to make sure there's no craziness on it and, you know, nothing splattered through. And then it's sent to the final through-hole assembly. And these are for scenarios like if you have a build that has a bunch of surface mount components, but then a few through-hole components like a SCART connector or a VGA connector. Those have to be soldered through by hand, and those are manually done by people on an assembly line who also do the final checks and finish it off to make sure everything looks the way it's supposed to be. So that's just a quick summary that shows how this SCART cleaner project went through JLC PCB's factory and how it got to the state that it's in now. Obviously, I was the one that did the manual through-hole process for this particular one, and I was also the one that ordered the wrong parts, which is why this thing doesn't work yet. However, I will be reordering at some point in the future. Maybe I'll just make one short condensed ad out of that one, but I do think the process was probably helpful for people who want to do stuff like this. Just remember, always check your design and your parts that you're ordering twice or you'll make the same mistakes that I did. But you should always kind of expect some kind of weirdness with prototyping. But anyway, I'll continue on this journey and hopefully have another video for you next week. Next up, the Sega Saturn Shiro crew just did an extensive write-up about the Saturn's floppy drive accessory. And there's so many cool things to talk about. I'm going to try to keep it short and just point you to their posts and, of course, any of the videos that they have accompanying it. But basically, Sega of Japan released a floppy drive accessory in 1996 that plugged into the extra serial port in the back of the Saturn, so not the AV port, not the MPEG port, the other one that was back there. And it required its own power supply, and it allows you to transfer and save, save games onto a floppy disk 
four games that are compatible. And while a floppy drive only can hold 1.44 megabytes of data, that's still about 50 times more space than was available to save your games on the Saturn itself. So it was certainly something that was, especially back in 96, very promising. And while the drive would equate to about 200 bucks today's money, it still was something that was cheaper than a lot of than buying multiple Saturn expansion RAM carts or save carts, not the RAM cart and floppy disks were super cheap too. So if you purchase this with a stack of floppies, you could end up having quite a lot of storage, but not every game supported it. Surprisingly, I think a few North American ones did. So I'm going to definitely point you to this post for everything that you would need to know about it. This was so well done and in-depth, and I learned so much about an accessory that I completely forgot existed because since it was never released here, it was not something I even learned about until I started Retro RGB. But check out the post and then check out the deep dive into all of the different games they tested with it to see if it would work. Uh, this is This is... Definitely a must, at the very least, a must skim for Saturn fans. But I feel like Saturn fans would really like to jump into this and give it a real try. So uh, I think this is not a peripheral that we're all going to be running out to buy. But I definitely think it's one that we're, any Saturn fan at least would like to learn more about. So thanks very much for the amazing post. And uh, that's definitely a very cool thing to learn about. Karapi, the creator of the Orpheus sound card, PC MIDI, and a whole bunch of other awesomeness, has just announced a new ISA-based sound card for vintage computers, and they're calling this one the MK8330 because it's built around the CMI8330 sound chip that was used in many Sound Blaster clones in the late 90s. So much like those cards were cheaper alternatives to the Sound Blaster, this is going to be a cheaper alternative to Karapi's homebrew project, the Orpheus sound card, which uses an original Yamaha chip, as well as has support for PC MIDI. So if you're really just looking to get a sound card working in your classic PC and you don't want to hunt down anything used that may or may not be working, this is probably going to be a good choice. It is very cool to see a lot of these projects come to life. Um, it's really neat to see things like the CD-ROM adapter on the top of the sound card. I remember fishing through many old computers trying to get my hand in to, to plug one of those in because I forgot to plug it in before I assembled it. So it, it's just awesome to see something like this come together. Price should be under 100 bucks, uh, probably a little over that after shipping. But overall, it's aiming to be something that's a little bit more affordable than the Orpheus and also keep in mind that we're in a global part shortage and inflation and all that. So while it's not much cheaper than the original launch price of the Orpheus, when you put all that into context, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a more affordable option for people that are looking for original hardware. Of course, we talked about the ExoDOS project a couple of weeks ago, or last week. Um, there's tons of emulation devices that allow you to really experience these older games if you want but it's not the same as on original hardware. It's not better or worse. You know, you can't really argue one or the other, but it's not the same. And this is equipment like this enables us to use that original equipment and have that same experience if that's what you're looking for. So I'm just always happy to see all of this. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to see people's videos on it and get the true reviews to see if it holds up to the originals. Tito from Macho Nacho Productions just did a video about the Saturn Switcher, which is something we talked about within the past few weeks that Will from Will's Console Mods created that allows you to mount the Fenrir optical drive emulator inside your Saturn. 
as well as the original optical drive, run everything out to the back where the MPEG card is, and then access your SD card and your switch to toggle between them right from there. I absolutely love any kind of ODE that allows to keep the original optical drive functionality. For me personally, I'm mostly going to use rips of my games, but to be honest, um, I always want to have that ability there. For me, I think I would use it for testing and comparison more than anything else, but it just sometimes I really just want to walk over to my shelf, pick up the game, you know, you have the case, you, you know, you're looking at the artwork, you put the disc in. Sometimes I just want the full experience. The other day I just fired up Super Metroid on the original cartridge on an unmodded Super Nintendo and really started to dig in and I loved having that whole experience. I very quickly switched over to a one-chip modded one that had the orchestral soundtrack, but whatever, you know, whatever you're in the mood for. And that's the important part about these. If you're in the mood to play your discs, if you just want to load up homebrew or your translations or whatever, you could use the ODE and this allows you to do it. So check out Tito's video for everything that you would need to know about it. Uh, it's a typical Macho Nacho production video. You get a really great sense of how it all works, how it all comes together and what you need to or what you should expect. The only thing to add is Tito's Saturn was one of the older ones that had the power supply attached to the top cover, so this installation should actually be slightly easier for people that have the other models with the power supplies mounted on the main board posts instead of in the top case. I always thought that was weird. Sega definitely did some strange things to shoehorn in their launch edition consoles, but that's a conversation for another time. Stika recently posted a review of an upcoming Sega Genesis new retro game called The Cursed Knight, and it was an interesting review in that Stika, first of all, approached it as normal, checked out the box art, the cartridge itself, the manual, the cartridge was beveled and chamfered, but then when Stika dug into the review itself, at first I got the impression that he didn't like it that much, but as the game went on, I feel like it progressively got better and better. And what I took away from it was it's a game that has many different styles jammed into it. So if you're really looking to have one type of game that you sink into, this probably isn't it. And also, if you get bored quickly, um, I'm glad I watched the review because I might have started playing this game and kind of gave up on it. But seeing how the game looked and all the things that were added after the first level would really make me want to sit through and play it. So it seems like a game that I'd be interested in. Um, hopefully you all might be interested in, at the very least, Stika's review on it. But one thing I will mention is that the game is done. They're doing a Kickstarter just to get funding to make the cartridges. And while I'm sure there might be a few last-minute tweaks in the game, the game is finished. It, you're not paying for development. You're just paying to have the carts made and have it released. And also, the company that's doing the distribution recently just did... Uh, I think I got Super Bat Puncher from them, and everything shipped totally fine. Their customer service was good, so it's one of those things where you know I don't I don't mean to compliment somebody to accidentally backhand somebody else in the face. I just only mean this from a positive perspective, and that when you jump on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any of these, you never really know who you're buying from. I mean, you could put your money in and end up having everything you need, probably delayed a little bit because everything is. Or it could end up being a complete and total nightmare where you get sent leather panties in the mail three years late, which is never what you asked for to begin with. So I always want to put the info out whenever it's a company that has a solid history of releasing stuff. I just feel like that's info that might skew people's decisions on whether to buy it now or kind of wait to see what happens. So 
so far everything's looking good with this one. The game looks pretty neat, and I'm certainly looking forward to playing it myself. An MS-DOS racing game that was previously thought to have been lost, or at least nobody could have found a copy who were talking online, has now been found and preserved, and the story behind it was pretty neat. Basically, Reese a few years ago picked up a retro PC, and inside it was the S3 Verge, which was a graphics card from around 95 that had early 3D graphics support. And when Reese picked up that PC, he did a video about games that supported that 3D graphics hardware, but there was one game missing, the MS-DOS game that was thought to have been lost. So this video kind of retells that story shows the game that was now found and shows its performance with the graphics card. And uh, it's not what you'd expect, but great video from Reese. And I think this is a story that both retro PC enthusiasts as well as video game preservationists would really enjoy. So definitely check it out. And speaking of Reese, I recently posted an interview podcast with him this past Monday, and it was great getting to know him better. We'd already welcomed him to the team and had been enjoying some of his posts, but it was very cool to just have a chat, learn a little bit more about his history and retro PCs and the YouTube channel he works on. And I'm certainly looking forward to reading a lot more of his contributions, and I've been following his YouTube channel for a while now. So if you want some interesting nerdy discussions, definitely check that out. As always with these long-form podcasts, they're available everywhere audio podcasts can be found just search for retro rgb reese and it'll pop up there and of course it's also available as a video or even for direct download if that's how you roll and now it's time for this week's mr updates care of lou from lou's retro source as usual i'm just going to skim through these and if there's anything here that's of interest to you please check out lou's video and youtube channel as well as this post here if you prefer to read but let's jump in and see what we got First up, Twitter user Pierco is working on an FPGA recreation of the Apple II GS. And anybody that was in schools in the U.S. in the 80s and 90s had definitely seen at least one or two of those before. Uh, it was always that elusive thing that I only get to mess with every now and then. So I'm really interested in seeing the core come to life and being able to use it on Mr. Also, a huge one for light gun fans. GunCon 2 and 3 drivers have been officially added to the main build. So you were able to test these before by manually installing it, but now all you have to do is run your favorite upgrade strip, script and you'll be able to get this. But this should allow you to use your GunCon 2 with any core that supports light guns on any CRT. And the GunCon 3 you would, uh, requires or doesn't require a CRT, but you have to have the whole kit with the sensors and everything. But same thing, you should be able to use both of those as if they were uh, whatever the standard light gun was. So I think that's really awesome. I have not had time to check that yet, but I just bought a full Time Crisis GunCon 2 kit from Brooklyn Video Games for this exact reason. I knew this was coming and I wanted to, to you know, to make sure to have all the right tools. So maybe I'll do a live stream where I just shoot shit for a little while. Uh, it certainly would, un would have a good time doing that, but that one's very exciting for me, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't be rambling about it. Uh, some more updates to the PSX core. Basically, Robert's just punching along, working his butt off, getting the core to the point where it's almost ready for public uh, for public release. Uh, 
There's also been a track and field core released by Hotego for Patreon subscribers. And just a quick reminder, it, all of Hotego stuff is free for everybody to use. But while it's still in beta, it's only open to Patreon subs, which I think is super fair. Not only does that give you an incentive to contribute, but it also removes an insane amount of troubleshooting and support for a core that's not ready for the public anyway. So just my opinion. You don't have to agree, but I certainly think that one's fair. Also, the user Wizzo on the F Mr. FPGA forums has released a script that runs a background music player for Mr. And it'll play music while you navigate the main menu, but stop once you load a core. If you return back to the main menu, the music will resume. So I think that's pretty cool. I think that's a great thing for maybe people who have it in an arcade cabinet that want some kind of rotating attract music going on or something like that, or just people who like to hear music queued up and played when they fire it up. There's also more progress on the next 186 core, which is another interesting one that I would like to take a look at. Um, I didn't really uh, expect, or I didn't really know that what a 186 was until recently, so I'm kind of interested to checking that out. Um, there's also an open source JAMA board being worked on, and it's called the JAMA Himitsu, and the goal is to have uh, inputs uh, that would for controllers that give you one millisecond or less of input lag and supposedly an additional header for player one and two based on the brook harness so i'm kind of interested to see this i'm obviously always a fan of whatever new projects come out but one of the problems with a lot of open source hobby stuff is that it's impossible to get and no one's making them so while i'm a big fan of this hopefully ralph will work with other people to have these made so people could actually purchase them but if not I still think it's awesome that they're working on an open source project like this. So props to the team. Mr. Add-ons has also given an update on the Mr. Express consoleized IO board in case. And it's just another option to choose from. And that's one of those things where you could use your Mr. Completely bare sitting on a piece of cardboard. So there's no shorts anywhere and it works fine. But I do like the aesthetics of all of these awesome case designs that people have been doing. So it's very cool you get to personalize it to whatever look you're going for. The only thing, you know, sorry, rant time. You know what I would really love to see? An I.O. board that mounts inside original consoles. Not so we could start gutting original consoles, but I would love to take a retro game restorer all clear case and like a Super Nintendo or Genesis and mount a mister in there and use that as my main mister. I think using like an original Genesis looking thing with a mister inside it might be the coolest thing. So mister hardware creators, think about porting an IO board to that scenario. I think that'd be really neat as well. But also um, the magazine Wireframe just put out an article dedicated to mister, which is pretty cool to see stuff like that in print. And uh, other miscellaneous updates, uh, driver to allow Wi-Fi reason, region change has been added, which is pretty cool for people to bounce around the world. Uh, Xbox wireless dongle support with preliminary chat pad support. That could definitely come in handy. And then there's tweaks to rumble support, um, MIDI pass-through, and a bunch of other various twix, twixes and feeks, <laughs> fixes and tweaks. Wow, it's been a long day, I guess. So, as always, thanks very much to Lou for doing all this, keeping us in the loop of everything going on in the Mystery Project, because there certainly is a lot going on, and I, I really enjoy having all of these uh, consolidated. So, thanks, Lou. 
There's a few RetroTink 5X related posts this week. The first up is a video from Wobbling Pixels that shows you how to get the best settings out of any model Super Nintendo using pretty much any cable. But as always, I want to impress upon everybody that you don't need to do any of this. If you just want to plug in your consoles and play them on your flat panel, all you have to do is connect it to the RetroTink, select your input, and that's it. You don't have to worry about any of this stuff, which is one of the main reasons I've always liked the RetroTink products. But if you're a nerd like us and you do want to mess with it, Wobbling Pixels completely and totally as you covered. For one-chip and non-one-chip models, um, for composite S-Video and RGB, although for composite I generally find it's best to just use the generic modes. But hey, play with your setup and see what you think. But there's PAL-specific, NTSC-specific stuff that both might want. Uh, it's an excellent video and it's definitely worth doing if you love the SNES and you have that and the retro tank. The only thing to note is whenever you save your profiles, at least at this moment, when you update to a new firmware, all of those profiles get wiped out. So you might want to hold off for a moment before doing that until you hear the next thing coming up. Mike Cheese just released firmware version 2.7 for the RetroTINK 5X, and it includes all of the features that he's been releasing as experimental betas on the Discord, as well as some new stuff. So a few things to talk about just to make sure that I get the most important points out. First, as I just mentioned in the previous section, updating your firmware does wipe out all your profiles. So while I think this is a worthy upgrade, if you have everything already tweaked and you don't really need any of these extra features, you might want to skip it, or at least just keep that in mind. So do all your profile tweaking after updating. Also, this firmware version gets rid of downscaling uh, and 540p support, because Mike needed to free up some room in order to keep all of these other features in. And the bad news is that means you'd have to go back to an older firmware for downscaling. But to be honest, the original or the the 1.0 version or 1.x version of the firmwares might be better suited for downscaling because you could set it to 240p, save it, and then when you reboot, it automatically boots in that mode. So if you're using the RetroTank predominantly for downscaling, then it's not a big deal. Leave it on the older firmware and you're fine. If you flip back and forth all the time, this one's going to be kind of a pain. You might want to have to work on whatever, whatever firmware has the most features all at once. But Mike's going to look into that, see if there's other things he could do. And I guess the most important thing to remember is you can go back and forth between firmwares all you'd like. None of this bullshit locking the firmware like a lot of other companies do. So you could switch back and forth with whatever you want to do. The only other thing to note, uh, I, I guess the, uh, the important point that I want to make sure to get out is that you have to enable all of these extra modes, but I thought that was such a smart decision. So the issue is Mike added a whole bunch of experimental modes that'll probably work for everybody, but there's definitely going to be use cases where it's just not compatible. So how do you add those features to a device that's known to be pretty much universally compatible to everything it plugs into? And I thought Mike made the right choice. After flashing this firmware, go into the menu, go into the OSD settings, turn advanced resolutions on, and there you go. All of the new output resolutions are available. You get the uh, 1536p tablet mode. Uh, you get the 4K 24, yeah, 2560 by 1440, which is pretty cool for people using 720p sources. And it also has a new mode that Mike added called 1080p min lag. And it's basically turning it into a line doubler. So you get only a millisecond of latency out of it. Now, 
That said, I challenge anybody to prove that frame lock versus this mode, min lag, makes any difference whatsoever in a real-life gameplay scenario, but it's nice to have. It's one of those things where if you were going to set it to 1080p anyway, maybe try it, and if everything looks the way you want it to, hey, there you go. You have a minimum lag mode, but... I think I'll. I, I don't think I'll be worrying about that. To be to be perfectly honest, I don't think I could ever tell the difference between two milliseconds of lag in that scenario. So, uh, the full list of changes are in the post, and there is one other cool thing that I wanted to talk about, kind of relating to it. As soon as Mike released those very realistic-looking scanline filters for the RetroTank 5X, I started experimenting with seeing if I could make flat panels start to really resemble more of a CRT-like look. And the number one reason I didn't do a video concentrating on it then is because everybody's flat panel is different. Everybody's distance that you sit from it is going to be different. There's just so many different factors involved. But then when Mike added the tablet resolution support, the 20-something by 1536, I thought, hey, this is a perfect experiment to run. Let's take Greg's LCD CRT kit, which anybody who buys it will have pretty much the same experience, and let's see how close I can make it look to a small PVM. Now, it's a 10-inch tablet screen, and I have either a 14-inch PVM or an 8-inch PVM to work with, and I thought a better comparison would be the 14. So I took shots with the camera. Shout out to Destiny. Thank you for letting me borrow your Blackmagic camera to try this on. I also tried uh, macro lens shots and everything. And I think the video accomplishes a few things. As I warned multiple times, it's not perfect. There's so much wrong with everything in there. The focus, the moray pattern, none of the displays are color calibrated. The color to match the camera wasn't. So it's more of just a fun look, but it does kind of give a really good idea of how these displays generate their image and why it's so hard to recreate these scan lines. But I think it also is a fun look in how, yeah, if you want a the same style look, you know, a small CRT where you can't really see the CRT mask, but the fact that it's there really cuts through the image to kind of help give it that true look, you could kind of come close. And Greg's LCD CRT does a great job with it. So if you want more info on that, check out the previous streams and video we did on it. And I will be selling this on Whatnot. This Friday, I will be doing a live stream on Whatnot with Greg from LaserBear, where we're going to be auctioning off a whole bunch of his very cool 3D printed retro gaming accessories. And as usual with these, when I team up with somebody else, all the stuff Greg sells, the money is going directly back into LaserBear. This isn't like a sponsored thing. This is just Greg and I hanging out, having fun, and hopefully using Whatnot to introduce a whole bunch of awesome new people to the crazy stuff that Greg makes, and vice versa. Maybe I can get a few more of you on the platform who are interested in other stuff that's sold there. A uh, few things to note, as always, if you're not on the platform yet, please use the link in the retrorgb.link forward slash whatnot, because that gets you $10 off your first purchase, and everybody likes free money. It's also going to be this Friday at 6 p.m. New York City time. That's been the times that I've been doing it on. I did like a social media survey that, you know, when is a good time to do these, and it was pretty undecided. So I've been doing Friday at 6 p.m., 
if you want me to change, please let me know. I would not know to do it at a different time unless you tell me. So I am all ears. But I really hope that people join and kind of hang out for this one. There's going to be everything from tiny, cheap little JAMA plugs to a, that exact LCD CRT that I used in the video. So you know exactly how it performs because I just gave it basically a 10 minute ad for it. Uh, and there's also going to be a, a kit. So you have to provide your own panel and backlight but you're able to use that kit in order to create your own LCD CRT. So hopefully I'll see you all there. I've had a really, really great time on the last few, met a bunch of cool people. So uh, I hope to see more of you there and please spread the word on this one because I think the more people that get involved in the weirder side of what we do on whatnot, the better for everybody. Well, that's it for this week. There was actually a few more things that I wanted to write up, but I didn't have time to do. I still want to talk about the wiki, but I guess we'll leave all of that for next week, and I promise I won't keep putting it off. And in fact, I have some very specific wiki-related things planned coming up that'll hopefully make it easier to understand what the heck I'm talking about. But anyway, as always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who is keeping all of these going. You who has got us past 300, now we're at 301 and up. So thank you all so much. And if you'd like to support in any way, just go to retrorgb.com forward slash support and check out all the different ways that you can, including ways that don't cost you a penny. So thank you again, and I'll see you next week.